This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 30th of April 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Stephen DL will join me to flick through the front pages, and then we'll have a look at the political significance of an Austrian monument, plus Andrew Tuck's weekend column. For a night to be great, all the obvious things have to go well, of course. The food be tasty, the service wisely pitched, the bill not life-threatening. But there's a part that no restaurant can control the mood of the diners. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here's the news. Powerful explosion killed more than 50 worshippers after Friday prayers at a Kabul mosque, its leader said. The latest in a series of attacks on civilian targets in Afghanistan during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Ukraine and Russia traded accusations over shaky talks to end a war now in its third month as Russia pounded areas in the east of the country and US lawmakers vowed a massive new weapons package for Kyiv. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, in remarks published early today, said lifting Western sanctions on Russia was part of the peace negotiations, which he said were difficult but continued daily by video link. Ecuador's president has declared a state of emergency in three western provinces because of rising crime. A curfew will be imposed and thousands of soldiers and police officers will be sent to the provinces to enforce peace and order. Ecuador has seen a sharp increase in murders and gang-related crime. This is the second time emergency powers have been used to curb violence since Lasso took office last year. And tonight, in the Northern Hemisphere, two of the solar system's brightest planets will appear to be almost touching. Venus and Jupiter will be millions of miles apart, but from Earth they will appear close to colliding. This planetary conjunction happens annually, but this year they'll appear much closer than usual. The same spectacle won't occur again like this until 2039. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers and I'm joined in the studio by the Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor Stephen Diel. Thank you for coming in, Stephen. Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everyone. How is your cinnamon bun? Oh, the cinnamon bun was wicked. I can recommend anyone, if they're in London, come along to not only the Monocle studios, but go to the Monocle shop and the Monocle cafe and buy a cinnamon bun. They, they are, are just the best. Yeah. And the weather's so glorious today. You can sit out on the pavement and nibble your bun little bit chilly, and, of course, I had to come back to the studio to look through the papers while nibbling my bun, but, um, uh, yes, it's... Is that a euphemism? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we should talk about serious things, and, indeed, there is nothing yeah. more serious at the moment than Ukraine. It's sadly unavoidable across all of the front pages. Uh, just taking a sort of slightly different take on it, though, let's start with the Washington Post, because the Russian elite appear to be fracturing... Indeed. The Washington Post has a fascinating story, and I think it's particularly fascinating because one of the contributors to it is Catherine Belton. And Catherine has written a brilliant book called Putin's People. Um, I'm on no commission for this, but any, anyone who wants to know more about 
Putin and what's gone on in the last 30 years in Russia. Um, I cannot recommend this book highly enough by Catherine Belton, Putin's People. And so the reason I recommend it and the reason I recommend this article um, is that Catherine's research is impeccable. Um, and this article called Cracks Emerge in Russian Elite as Tycoons Start to Bemoan Invasion. Um, and clearly she's spoken to a lot of people who know what's going on uh, at or at least around Putin, uh, around the top. Um, and it seems there's, a, there's an amazing photo, actually, from the 24th of February when Putin called in not his inner circle, but the kind of what I t tend to refer as the outer circle, so the wealthy oligarchs, many of whom made their money before Putin came to power. And they're sitting in the Yekaterinsky Hall in the Kremlin, grand, grand um, place with amazing Gothic columns. <laughs> but the, the ridiculous thing is that Putin is sitting on one side of it and far, far away there's this group of, of oligarchs, businessmen, senior politicians looking a bit like a, a class in school. But because Putin is so paranoid still about coronavirus, you know, he's almost sort of shouting across the room to them. Um, and they were all told, well, you know, this is what's happening. And it's from that group now that we're getting voices saying, you know, we shouldn't really be doing this. But crucial thing is no one is saying this to Putin. No one dares in Russia to say to Putin, excuse me, Mr. President, you're wrong. The closest it appears from this article that we've had is the, um, uh, the, the head of the, central, the Russian Central Bank, Elvira Nabiulina, who is one of the few women to break through to, uh, to, to anywhere near the top in Russia. And um, according to this article and according to Bloomberg, um, she did actually say she wanted to resign because of what was going on and Putin wouldn't let her. Um, I saw something recently as well saying that um, uh, it's a shame that she's been put under sanctions because she's the one sound voice at the top in the Kremlin or in or near the Kremlin. Um, but it's, it's, it is a fascinating article and it shows that not all Russians, even at the top, actually support this dreadful war. Mm. I mean, there are a number of articles that, uh, across the papers about whether or not a coup against Putin is likely. And on balance, it seems to be people are saying not. Unfortunately, and I, I, I say that guardedly, but I, I think it's true. Unfortunately, it's not. Because if you remove Putin from this situation, if Putin were to die, either be murdered, have a heart attack, I don't suppose he'll commit suicide. Um, but if, if he is taken out of the picture, the war stops. Even though there are hawks in, amongst the, the Russian, what they call the Siliviki, those, the, the ministries, the, the, the defence ministry, the, the, the security services, who are quite in favour of the war. But even so, it, this is all Putin's idea. This is one of the things that is so uh, fascinating, gruesome about this whole story, that this is one man's idea. If it weren't for Putin, there would be no war in Ukraine. No, they, the Russians would not have attacked. They might have carried on switching off the gas, uh, cyber attacks, uh, uh, you know, niggling away at Ukraine. But there would not have been 130,000 soldiers crossing the border on the 24th of February. This, mm. is, this is all about Putin. Um, and so it does seem that and it, it can't really stop until he's removed. Now, if those around him are having doubts but 
not prepared to tell him and not prepared to get together in some way, then, yeah, it seems unlikely that um, he's going to go away any time very soon. But, I mean, we are seeing a number of top people, particularly military people, being slowly picked off, arrested or whatever, and one assumes then those are people who are making their voices heard. Well, it seems that the arrests have been mainly because they gave him bad intelligence. So, for example, the head of um, the the FSB, the, the KGB successor um, in charge of intelligence for Ukraine, uh, who had basically said to him, oh, you know, you come into Ukraine, um, they've got a they've got a, a comedian for a president, no one likes him, um, Ukrainians will welcome us in with open arms and flowers and we'll take Kiev in three days. Um, and it seems that it's that kind of intelligence... Putin has now punished him. He had put it, First of all, he put him under house arrest. Now he's in Lefortova prison, which is one of the nastiest prisons and mm-hmm. has um, a lot of connotations from Stalin's time. A lot of people were shot in the basement of the Lefortova. Um, so it, it seems that that kind of action, instead of making those around him think, come on, we've got to deal with Putin, they're saying, oh, you know, well, we do, do we dare move against him because otherwise we might end up with the same in the same place? Speaking of prisons, I wonder if you've seen that documentary, the Storyville documentary on BBC Two about uh, Navalny, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. It's absolutely excellent. Yes, and sadly, um, it, I, I think you can put down a, a lot of what's going on... You, back to when Navalny was um, was arrested after he came back from Germany. As we know, he was poisoned by the Russian state, um, probably with some form of Novichok uh, in 2020. He was taken to Germany for uh, for treatment. He was there for some months, always said he would go back to Russia, came back to Russia uh, 14 months ago, 15 months ago, um, was almost immediately arrested, um, trumped up charges, put in prison. He's now had his sentence extended. That moment when Navalny was put in prison... 14 months ago, I see as the point where the screws really start to tighten. Mm. This um, law they'd passed in 2013 about foreign agents, anyone who got any kind of help from from abroad was deemed a foreign agent. More people and organisations were deemed foreign agents in the 12 months between Navalny being put in prison and the war starting than had been put in prison ever since the law came in in 2013. So that's a real tightening of the screws. And then, of course, we see since the 24th of February, the start of the war, all independent media closed down in Russia. Some of them are now broadcasting or printing uh, or, or putting online abroad. But that that's a really key moment, the, the way that um, Putin treated Navalny. Um, uh, and yes, I mean, it, and it's it's well worth watching that, that, uh, that documentary if people can. Uh, and I mean, it shows the extent of support for Navalny, which I thought was extraordinary. Now, a really big story, of course, that happened this week was the reversal of policy in Germany, because suddenly they are going to send weapons uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and this is a decades long policy, which is, has been flipped now. Uh, and a Another story about Germany in conjunction with Ukraine coming up, and this is about Holocaust survivors being sent back there. Of course, the reason that Germany, one of the reasons that Germany is so reluctant to get involved militarily is because of their history. Yes, this is, it's a fascinating story on the front cover of the New York Times, um, and it, evacuate, evacuees confront the past. Um, Fleeing Ukraine invasion, Holocaust survivors turn to Germany for refuge. Um, and it particularly focuses on um, a lady called Galina Ploschenka, who is 90 years old, who, uh, when there was an attack on the city of Dnipro, in, in fairly central in Ukraine, um, uh, she was in a retirement home, um, in her bed, she, she, she's bedridden, um, 
and all the staff had gone downstairs to the basement to, to shelter. She's left there um, with uh, um, with two other patients on either side of her, none of whom they, they couldn't get out of bed. Um, fortunately, they survived the attack. And then she was persuaded, and this is a Holocaust survivor, remember, and she is persuaded that the place to go for refuge is Germany. And you can imagine her initial reaction to that. They, there's even a picture on the front cover of some of her pictures from the, the, the photo album she took with her. Um, showing her as a young woman. Um, and she's realised that actually suddenly Germany's a different place yeah. and uh, and she now feels safe and she's being looked after in a, uh, in a retirement home in Hannover. Um, uh, and that's, you know, it's a tiny good, good news story that, that, that's come out of this ghastly war. Yeah. I just want to point out uh, an event happening next week. It's called Torn Apart, Family Histories During and After the Holocaust. It's taking place at JW3, which is in northwest London, as its name indicates. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a workshop that addresses the, the long-lasting consequences of Jewish families torn apart by the Second World War and the Holocaust. Now, my own family was affected in this way. And in fact, what's going to happen here is that there'll be a screening of a film called Safer in Silence, uh, which is a film made by my cousin, Corinne uh, Knox Chateau. Uh, and it tells the story of our family and and how that what happened to them in Poland and how it's affected the, the next generation uh, and, and, and those still surviving. Very, very interesting. So that's at JW3. That's on Tuesday. It's called Torn Apart Family Histories During and After the Holocaust. Just before we leave this uh, topic, a uh, quick look at wine and you. Ukraine. <laughs> a bizarre story, um, but it's, it shows how the war is affecting so many things, in, 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 including the economy. And perhaps it, it's, it's typical. This appears in Le Monde. Um, the French, of course, love their wine. Um, and there's a, an article which translates into English as the shadow of the Russian monster hovers over Black Sea vineyards. And it's, it's, it's saying how um, the, the war is affecting also uh, the wine industry. Um, half of Ukraine's wine industry was stolen from it when Russia seized Crimea in, in 2014. Um, but it's also affecting Georgia, Armenia, Moldova, former Soviet republics, with, uh, which produce very good wine, um, many of them with 1,000-year-old with vines. Um, and it's, it's also causing a problem for the French because although Russia is not the biggest market, it's a significant market for, for France. Um, uh, I think it's, it's almost, uh, it's, you could say, sort of serves them right to a certain extent because... Um, Last year, in, in, in this wave of um, ultra-nationalism in Russia, they, the, the Russian parliament declared that the word champanskoye, which is the Russian word for champagne, clearly, um, would, would have to apply only to, uh, to, to Russian wines. And the French actually bowed to this and, and agreed to have their champagne classed in Russia as sparkling wine. Well, um, <laughs> that's why I say it could be kind of serve them right because um, now they're having a problem, of course, selling any wine into Russia. Yeah. Now, Andrew Tuck's been tasting some fine wines and hearing various stories about Birmingham. I was surprised when she said that she'd met her partner in Birmingham. Nothing against Birmingham, I hasten to add, before the wrath of the Brummies comes my way. It's just that she looked like a Helmut Newton-era Saint Laurent model and was Spanish and living in Lisbon. So where, I wondered, did the link to Midlands Britain come in? And her partner is German and someone you'd expect to find in Tulum or Ibiza, not in traffic on the M25. Really? You met in Birmingham? I asked, somewhat astonished. No, 
I said we met at Burning Man, she said. Correcting me with a smile. To be fair to yours truly, it was noisy in the restaurant. But then I stumbled again when someone else said they were a naked speaker. Why naked, I thought. No, I said I'm a native speaker, came back the second correction of the night. I must see if they still sell ear trumpets, like those ones you see in old movies, because you can see how misunderstandings might occur around me. I could have been telling people for months that the wonderful French film producer I met was willing to moderate debates in the buff. No, really, she told me in Paris that it's just something that she does. This was Wednesday night in the midst of production for the June issue. It's heading to the printers this very weekend. And there we all were, squeezed onto a long table at La Coupole in Montparnasse in Paris at the end of a very long day. And the atmosphere was almost giddy, even if you couldn't quite hear what people were saying. Another bottle of red was never far away. Snails were being cajoled from their shells. Frites devoured. Pots of mussels made appearances. And there may have been a prawn cocktail or two coming my way. It was a dinner for 16 of the Monocle crew, the film producer, her friend, who to her knowledge had never stepped foot in Birmingham, and some other Monocle family friends. And it was just one of those nights that turns out to be immense fun. Perhaps everyone was in a good mood because Paris had looked glowing all day in the almost summer light. Or that we'd had such a fruitful day at Chanel's new centre for protecting its craft heritage. This is going to be the venue for our quality of life conference this June. Or maybe it was just that we'd been awake far too long. But that's the strange thing about restaurants. For a night to be great, all the obvious things have to go well, of course. The food be tasty, the service wisely pitched, the bill not life-threatening. But there's a part that no restaurant can control. The mood of the diners. Miserable sods will probably believe they had a two-star night, whatever unfolds. The restaurant simply provides the stage, the setting, and some of the players. But it's only when we also know our role arrive with some joy that a special night can unfold. Anyway, let's just say that conference guests may be getting some La Coupole action too. And the good thing is, you lot are never grumpy. Many years ago, I used to go to Birmingham quite a lot, actually. The other half was in several seasons of plays at the Rep Theatre, and I would often drive up from London to pick him up after the Saturday night show so that we could have at least one day together in London. It meant that I often had a lone seat in the auditorium on Saturday nights, squeezed between two families, or worse, soppy couples. One night, during Romeo and Juliet, the woman next to me and her friend just couldn't stop commenting on the show, but for the most domestic of reasons. Psst, Carol, see that blue, said Samantha, eyeing up the set. That's the colour Jim's doing the bathroom. Then, a few minutes later, Psst, Carol, have you ever wanted a balcony? It was all rather admirable, actually. In one sitting, they were getting Shakespeare, a makeover show, and a damn good natter. They might feel a little overwhelmed with the design tips if they came to Chanel's HQ. 
although their unlikely makeover inspiration sources are outdone by a story a friend told me about working at a women's magazine. They'd done a story about incest, and someone wrote in to ask whether the magazine would mind contacting the victim they had featured to ask where she'd bought her sofa. But back to Paris. It's going to be an extraordinary conference, and you should get one of the remaining tickets. There'll be tours, great debates, dancing, and lots of people to meet. And, of course, Paris. And I also heard someone mention some naked speakers too. Well, Andrew Tuck may well be getting his kit off here in Paris. I have no idea. Now, there is a story about a blonde man in his 50s who's called Boris and has been accused of criminal behaviour. And he has been sent down for it two and a half years in Wandsworth Prison. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> Becca, it's not, not Johnson. The Prime Minister. <laughs> Tell us more about this story. Because, of course, Stephen, you're intimately involved, so to speak. <laughs> Because you have actually umpired at Wimbledon, which is where, of course, Boris Becker made his name. I I have indeed. Um, But it's making me feel old because uh, Boris Becker won his first Wimbledon championship in 1985, becoming the youngest ever men's uh, champion at the age of 17. Um, I had retired from umpiring two years previously. Um, I was actually one of the youngest umpires on the circuit and got very fed up with being treated as a second-class citizen. Um, But I had a bit of fun and I umpired Nastasi and McEnroe for those who are a little bit older, may remember those names. Um, but yes, Boris Becker, um, he, he's had a colourful life, shall we say, um, including apparently fathering a child in a cupboard with a waitress at a restaurant he visited once. Um, and uh, he's now been um, sent down, sent to prison for um, hiding assets. He, he was declared bankrupt um, in 2017, owing creditors uh, nearly £50 million, pounds, so sort of $70 million, something like that. Um, and uh, he, was, he was accused of hiding millions of pounds worth of assets to avoid paying those debts. Um, he, the, the court case uh, took place recently and he was, he was then, as, as often happens, the sentence came only yesterday on Friday. Um, and uh, they, they found, the jury found that, yes, indeed, he had, uh, hidden lots of his assets um, and uh, this therefore he lied to the court um, he lied to the whole bankrupt bankruptcy process and yes he's been sent to prison for two and a half years mm. and of course most recently sort of professionally he was actually Novak Djokovic's coach yeah, uh, and Djokovic won six Grand Slam titles. Oh yeah, yeah. Time. No, I mean he's been huge in the world of tennis. Um, first as a player, a very very successful player, um, winning. He won t- uh, three Wimbledon titles, two Australian Open titles, and one U.S. Open title, which by anyone's standards is very good going. Um, and uh, and I noticed, in fact, when he uh, when he arrived at the court yesterday um, for the sentencing, he was wearing his his Wimbledon tie. Um, now, to be a member of the All England Lawn Tennis Club at Wimbledon, um, of course, it's not the British Open. It's not. It, it's it is a actually a club tournament. It's just the most famous club tournament in the world. But um, you have to be invited to join the club. It's very difficult to get into, um, and. So a, a men's or women's champion is normally invited to join. So he's had become a member. Whether they'll now take his membership away is quite possible. But he was wearing the club tie, which in, in Britain means an awful lot to mm. wear your club tie. Um, but, yeah, he's been hugely successful as a player, then as a coach, also as a commentator. 
um, even last year at Wimbledon, he was commentating um, when this was all buzzing around him. Um, but uh, a colourful character, but um, sadly not always totally honest, it seems. No. Now, the uh, massive Soviet war memorial in the centre of Vienna has always attracted controversy. It's been bombed, it's had graffiti painted all over it, it was once a murder scene. It was built right after the Second World War and it uh, commemorated the Red Army troops killed liberating the city. Its protections enshrined in the Austrian State Treaty of 1955 that gave the country independence. But since Russia made its first advances into Ukraine in 2014, the monument has become a site of protest against modern Russian aggression. So what does the monument mean for the city today as Russia's image has shifted from that of liberator to occupier? Well, let's hear the take from Alexei Karyalov. Many Austrians welcomed Hitler as he annexed their country in 1938. But after the war, Austria described itself as a victim of Nazism rather than its ally. And the Soviet memorial in Vienna was seen as confirmation of this. Uh, this was also perceived that way by the international community, both during the war and after the war. Wolfgang Müller is professor of Soviet and Russian history at the University of Vienna. And uh, the monument was also part of a general agreement, one might say. It was the Austrian government who was standing there uh, when it was inaugurated. It was also all four allied powers who were also present. So this was uh, a consensus that it should pay respect to the liberators, to uh, the Soviet army on the one hand side and to the Western allies on the other side. Das Heldendenkmal der Roten Armee was unveiled in August 1945, the first in a series of large-scale Soviet memorials erected across Europe after the war. It included a giant figure of a Red Army soldier, machine gun across his chest, and an extensive quotation from Stalin. The message was clear. We are the heroes here. But soon, it took on a very different meaning, one that has sinister echoes in Ukraine today. This liberation had some side effects like war crimes and post-war crimes or the plundering of uh, uh, the population uh, in uh, eastern Austria by the Soviet. by parts of the of the Red Army. There were atrocities being committed and also plundering. There were problems with the discipline. So the acceptance of um, the monument by the population decreased. Okay, my name is Paul Maringer and I'm working at the um, Federal Monuments Authority Austria. When I was in the primary school, our teacher told us that this is the monument. Austrians are thanking the Russians that they left Austria in 1955, which is actually not true, yeah. because it was built in 1945. They told us this is the last uh, soldier that left Austria, <laughs> which is all the way around. Yeah. So, um, and it's very interesting because um, it, it got names uh, also like the, the monument of the uh, unknown uh, looter, uh -huh. plunder. Still, do you think there is an element, even today, uh, among the Austrian public, especially with this monument, that Russians are liberators? I think the Americans and the Eng English people, the friends, are more felt as uh, liberators. The Russians always were, f were felt more than occupators and 
there was a fear, but but this fear is also because of the Cold, Cold War, War and, and of the development after uh, 45. And that's why it um, I think it was more uh, negatively felt. After the Cold War, the negativity of the monument subsided, only to come back in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and stirred up conflict in the Donbass, and again two months ago as it launched a full-blown invasion of Ukraine. So now a great big question is looming here. Should monuments glorifying Soviet soldiers have a place in Europe? The last word to Professor Wolfgang Müller. I would see that perhaps there are more and more monuments created for the victims of state crimes and so on. So these are not the usual or the classical monuments for the victories. I think it is very important what is being commemorated, who is being commemorated and how. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. Many thanks there to Alexei. And of course, that's not the only memorial that's controversial. No, and indeed, it's uh, very appropriate to be running that now because this week, a monument in Kiev uh, marking the brotherhood of Russians and Ukrainians has been dismantled. Mm. Uh, right, let's end on this story, which is consuming Britain and really seems to be of marginal importance, I would say, uh, we're looking, at, <laughs> looking at the world around us. This is the MP accused of watching pornography in the comments. Now, obviously, he's doing this uh, when he should be uh, engaged in the debate at taxpayers' expense. That's very wrong. But tell us the detail of the story. Well, Neil Parrish, who is the MP, who, um, and the, perhaps the terminology should be explained because um, uh, he has he has had the whip removed which if you think <laughs> <laughs> this is after watching pornography in the chamber of the house of commons it might sound a bit odd um, that means that he's not allowed to consider himself a member of the conservative party vote as a conservative um, while the investigation is going on um, and he maintains that uh, he yes he had his phone out in the chamber which sounds a bit odd anyway surely you're supposed to be taking part in the debate or at least listening um, but he had his phone out and he accidentally um, opened some pornography on his phone. Now, um, that, that and, and was spotted by a female member of the uh, House of Commons. Two um, female members. Two female yeah. members, yes, who, who, you know, who were suitably horrified. Um, had he just opened it and realised then surely he would have closed it straight away and they wouldn't wouldn't have noticed. It reminds me of actually of a story when I was at the BBC. So in the sort of real, relatively early days of the internet, when one of my colleagues, who was a very, very serious chap and was doing a very serious story about American politics and went to find the White House website and there was a pornographic publication with a similar name which he ended up on their website and got off it very quickly but he was terrified that the the internet police of the bbc would check what it, what he'd been looking at um but he got off it straight away but but surely if he was looking at it for long enough was he was he checking it was pornography was it is he so ignorant he didn't know what it was um it does sound very strange but it is it's the sort of thing that of course the british tabloids absolutely love yeah well listen i'm i'm not a porn aficionado i, I I must say it holds no allure for me. But what I do know about it is, or what I assume about it, is that uh, it involves a certain interactive element. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I don't understand then what 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 the joy would be in watching it if you couldn't actually um, in, in in take part or uh, yeah. yeah. Perhaps we shouldn't go too far down this this. this as as, as, as but, one man put um, it on Twitter, uh, uh, <laughs> he's single-handedly brought down the British government. <laughs> <laughs> very well put. Very well put. I'm just trying to see how old he is because you know, maybe he's maybe he's just it, it looks about. You know, he's probably in his 50s, maybe in his 60s, so maybe he's just trying to relive his lost youth or something. I don't know. Um, but but, um, but, but on, a, on a more serious note, do you think then that perhaps what the way that the rules should change, it shouldn't just be no pornography, surely no phones in, in, in the House. I mean, you're there to concentrate on the business at hand. And if you, you, you see parliamentary messengers going around dropping off notes, if somebody needs to contact you urgently, that's how it's meant to happen. And instead you see things like uh, tweets coming being issued live from the House of Commons, and is that right? I, I, I don't, I don't agree. I think I'm, you're saying it's, you don't think it's right. I certainly don't think it's right. I, yeah. You know, yes, if someone needs to contact you urgently, then a message will be sent. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the, when we look at our House of, our House of Commons in, in action. So often, if you actually look at what's going on in the chamber, there are hardly any MPs in there anyway. Um, but surely if they have turned up for a debate, then the least they can do is give their full attention to that debate. So, yes, um, it's, you know, a lot of places have somewhere where you have to leave your phone, uh, you know, under lock and key, fine. But why can't they do that? I mean, perhaps there will be a, a call for that to happen now because... Surely that's, they should be concentrating on the debate and, and not looking at the news or anything else on their phones while yeah. they're in the Chamber of the House of Commons. Absolutely. Stephen, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, and that's all we have time for. But uh, Stephen DL, uh, our Russia analyst, uh, thanks for, for being with us. Also thanks to our studio engineer and to Marcus Hippie, our supervising producer. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.